Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, a 20-year design flaw in Windows has finally been fixed by Microsoft after a year, and you won't believe how much code changes they had to make. Forbes.com gets compromised, and then we'll take a look at Facebook's new threat exchange platform and why it just might be a great idea. And then it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 201 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on February 12th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks hey, for watching. Hey, Alan. And uh, I have to give right out at the top of the show uh, a big thank you to you. You saved my butt last week so yep. bad. It was like I was – okay. So we pre-recorded the Linux Action Show, last week's Linux Action Show. It just aired. And uh, I <clears throat> was doing some hard drive cleanup like I do and uh, deleted the pre-recording of the, the episode. And I didn't realize it till Friday before Linux Action Show was supposed to come out. And so I was like, Alan, 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 is there any chance that Scale Engine has a backup of our video stream from that Sunday, which at that point was, was five, six days ago, right? <laughs> and you did. You did. Well, yeah, in particular, we had set up our uh, automatic uh, hourly recording system because uh, we're working on launching a new feature, and uh, you're basically our dummy. Hey, I don't mind testing for you because it saved my uh, bacon, Alan. It saved my bacon. I love that. Scale Engine. Everybody go to scaleengine.com and check it out if you have some video streaming needs or content hosting needs. Ooh, boy, save me. I've just got to say. Okay, Alan. Well, uh, we've talked a lot over the last six months about these vulnerabilities and things like uh, uh, Linux and open source and Unix uh, software systems that people have been, all these have been around for years. Like I'm thinking right now of like Shellshock, for example, right? Oh, this is horrible. These vulnerabilities, nobody catches them. Well, turns out it's not just the Linux and Unixes that have this problem. Yeah, well, in particular, so there's uh, Microsoft uh, in this week's patch twos, they had nine security bulletins which addressed 56 different vulnerabilities in Windows, Office, Internet Explorer, and their server software and so on. Uh, but the biggest two are MS15011 and 014. And what makes these vulnerabilities kind of special is they're not the same as like, you know, Shellshock and so on, where it was a mistake in the code, where it was supposed to work, but because of a mistake in the code, it caused a vulnerability. In this particular case, this was a design flaw in the way Windows works. So the entire thing is... <laughs> it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. and, and so, it affects anybody using Active Directory, so it's not just like all Windows, yeah. though. You have to be using Active Directory, but that's a ton of Windows Basically, computers. If, you're, if, you, if you have a corporate network and it has a domain, which yeah. is like every corporate network, yeah. then yes. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, this vulnerability was reported to Microsoft in January of 2014. I'm sorry, what? But it took them it took them a 11 or sorry, 13 months to fix it because they had to re-engineer the entire way the Active Directory system works. They had to invent new features to solve the problem. No. Because it wasn't just a bug in the code that could just be fixed. So it's literally a design flaw. Yeah, it was a design flaw in the way Active Directory works altogether. And and more it was just the way the world has changed since when they built Active Directory back mm, for Windows NT4. Yeah. Um, well, no, it debuted in 2000, Windows 2000. No, well, yeah, Active yeah, Directory, yes. Yeah, but Active the group Directory. policies, the right. feature that actually has a problem, group technically came from NT4. NT4 yep, so, yeah, yep, yep. it's been around that long. And back then, 
you kind of had the inside my network and outside my network. Yes, very much. And everything so. inside was trusted and everything outside wasn't. Yeah. Well, that's not really the case anymore. No. Plus, people travel and, and connect via the internet back to the office now, which wasn't really a thing before. Right. Yeah. Much more uh, re- or, like you know, broken if, out if somebody did connect uh, back to the office, they dialed up to a server at the office where you yeah. had a big multi-line yeah. phone line and they dialed yeah. into Citrix or something. Yeah, or PC Anywhere or whatever what yeah. a stupid system it was. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the new and then one, they had to build these new features, and then they have to test them and do regression testing, and then be like, yeah. "Does it? Like, is this going to break some certain software well, configuration people are going to be using on Windows uh, Seven or you know, does it mean, work on Windows Eight Point One? When you're messing with Active Directory, you're literally going to mess with every computer in the organization that's yeah. attached to it, and, and that is a big all change all over the place. Yeah. Major change, yeah. So no wonder it took them about a what did you say about a year to work on it? It was thirteen months between when it was reported and when they finally Jeez. pushed out the fix uh, this Tuesday or last Tuesday. Wow. Um, so most corporate network security features in Windows are actually deployed via group policies, right? So you know your Windows computer has a configuration, but when you join a domain and you log into it, it downloads this group policy object, which is basically just a registry hive mm-hmm. that it then applies onto your computer over top of your local settings. Mm-hmm. And it changes a bunch of settings. Like you can use group policies uh, to do stuff like take away the run button from the start menu, right? Or make the control panel disappear. Or you can even just you know, whitelist so that only certain applications run. Yeah, you, you can, can do say things only like, these applications can run. Only these users can do this. Disable only this can USB devices. You can you can adjust the encryption, the networking uses. I mean, all kinds of yeah. things. I remember. Uh, a big one was controlling the password hash that Windows XP used because oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the default one was the Windows ninety five one and was horrible. Um, I remember back using Windows 95 in uh, high school, they had a group policy that prevented you from uh, using the run menu and a bunch of other stuff, but also changing the proxy settings in Internet Explorer was disabled uh, because they they forced you to go through their content filter that would block stuff, right? Uh, And so if you wanted to go to something that was blocked, you had this problem. Uh, so they disabled the run menu, the registry editor, and the proxy settings in Internet Explorer. But because it was Windows 95 and it wasn't actually a domain, right? They were doing like a work group or whatever. Um, you could run group policy editor <laughs> and then just re-enable the ability to run mm. regex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was sad. Mm-hmm. So we worked around it. But uh, anyway, so these settings get applied when you log into the computer. And that's where almost all the security settings and, and stuff you use on a corporate network come from. Yeah. So it's kind of a big thing. Yeah, about, yeah, um, kidding. One of the group policies that was introduced a couple of years ago was what's called SMB signing. Mm-hmm. So this is when you're using you know, the Windows file sharing protocol to connect to a server to access files. Or uh, actually, it's also used for basically everything in the Windows network. Um, it has signing so that you can verify that the server is actually the right server. So it's kind of like, you know, HTTPS with your certificates. You're making sure the server you're talking to is actually the real PayPal, not a fake one. So this is making sure you're talking to the real file server for your company, not a fake one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so group policy enables that as you log in. The problem is the bug MS15-014 uh, allows an attacker to interfere with the application of the group policy by just messing with the network uh, as you're downloading it or, you know, a bunch of different things they can do that will cause the group policy not to apply to your computer. So they just make it so that uh, they block Windows' ability to download the group policy, and so Windows continues without it. Yeah. Because uh, Windows defaults to you know, letting you do stuff rather than not. Uh, 
So now that the SMB feature is turned off because you didn't get the group policy forcing it, now when you try to run a trusted program uh, from a network server, it actually connects to the bad guy's server and runs his program. Mm-hmm. Right? Because he can now pretend to be the real one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can just bring uh, a laptop in there, you get that set up, and you just start grabbing people's login sessions. Right. And so they're talking about doing this in man in the middle, like what people that are at a hotel and connecting back to work. Uh, or being on the LAN and, and doing, uh, you know, uh, ARP spoofing to, to take over the IP address of the server and a bunch of different things you can do to be able to do that. Uh, then there's MS15-011, which is related and has an interesting kind of recursive catch-22 kind of element to it. So during the process where Windows clients actually download the group policy from the domain controller, mm-hmm. there's no authentication. What? 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 Because... It's not verifying the server you're downloading the group policy from because it doesn't have the group policy that says verify the server because that's what you're downloading, right? <laughs> yeah. And also, it doesn't, it, you know, that's when it gets the list of servers to trust. That makes sense, yeah. I didn't even think of that, of course. Uh, and so, and this is set by the group policy, so it has to download it first before it has uh, the mm. keys to check against and has the feature that forces it to check enabled. So as part of the group policy download, though, the client also runs a series of scripts from the domain controller, like login.cmd. Mm-hmm. Well, so if you can spoof being the, the server they're connecting to that, you can provide them your own different group policy that maybe actually reduces the default security. It makes everything worse, right? So like if you have a Windows 7 install, it has certain security features enabled, but you have to disable those for interoperability with like Windows XP or something. Uh, or going back even further, I think. Um, and so you could actually give them a group policy that opened them wide up, and they would trust it because they they not told not to yet, right? Uh, and you could just stick any command you want in that login.cmd, and their computer's just going to run them every time they log in. So you can be like, download and install this malware. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me just get this at your login session for you. Yeah. So the malactor mm-hmm. sitting in a man in the middle position can replace the group policy with their own that affects the security of the machine, and make the user run any commands they want and download any files they want from their malicious server and so on. So to solve this issue, the feature uh, Microsoft's come up with is what they're calling mutual authentication and uh, UNC hardening. Yeah, you, oh yeah, okay, I heard about this. Yeah, so the mutual authentication means that uh, the client will verify the server that's giving it its group policy and uh, vice versa, right? Uh, the Domain controller won't give the group policy away to people that aren't in the domain, so somebody can't see what ah, your group policy is. Makes sense. Uh, but this feature has to be enabled by group policy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what about so, now? I do not remember my Windows administration well enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. But there is also local policies on these machines, and couldn't you set some yep. of these things for as local policies? So that way, if the probably group, yeah, but are you going to go around and right. do that to every no. machine? No, I'd no, rather do it. Gonna... I'd rather do it at the domain level. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the client uh, must make one last insecure connection to the domain controller. At which point, they will then, from then on, verify the domain controller and be fine. Hmm. So basically. Uh, with this fix, Microsoft pushed out this feature. You install the fix, and then every machine as it logs in becomes secure. So you got to at least go through it one more time. Yeah, you have to run the gauntlet of, of 
possibly getting uh, faked out one more time, and then yeah. you're okay. And then what happens though for like you know I I have seen it. You got these straggler laptops. It's a loner. It's been shitting on, sitting on the cell shelf for six months. Yep. It hasn't logged in. Hasn't been booted. This happens all the time in with in, in shops. Uh, would yep. that then be vulnerable? Uh, still? It's, it's also missing a bunch of the Windows updates probably. Yeah. In, until it gets the update, it probably can't support this feature. Right. right? This feature is new. Yeah. So. The client has to have installed the patch and then logged in and got the new policy. Hmm. All right. Uh, and also, what about the question of a fresh installed Windows? Yeah. So you just installed Windows and you're going to connect it to the domain controller. Can you get faked out then? Oh, right. Of course. Every version of, yeah, they're all going to have this problem at the base install. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a pain in the butt. So maybe in your deployment image, you're going to have to uh, use a local policy to turn this feature yeah. on for the yeah. first connection or something. Yeah, yeah, build into, yeah, build um, into the image. The other big thing is that Microsoft is not going to patch this for Windows XP, Windows 2000, nor Windows Server 2000 and 2003. Well, and 2003 still has months left of support. I don't think so, no. I, no, think I thought it had like now. five. No, I, I might. So. Okay, all right. Maybe so. It might, but they're <clears throat> not patching it for Windows Server 2000. Yeah, I know. And I, I, the reason why that jumped out at me is because I remember reading, well, wait, what do you mean they're not patching it when it's still, I thought it still had well, five like, months of... I thought, we only have like five months before Windows 7 is out of support. Yeah, maybe that's it'll have, it. That it'll stop I'm... getting new features. It'll be in long-term support. So it'll still get security yeah. fixes, yeah. but not new features. So yeah. I think maybe that's what it was. Anyway. Uh, you know what? Um, I, I do remember where I read that now. Uh, I have it right here from Ars. Uh, they say, uh, when Ars Technica was covering it, they said that, uh, I can't, yeah. Server 2003 will continue to support until the middle of July. So 2003 oh. is supported until the middle of July, but they're still not going to patch it for this flaw. Mm. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I, I guess they just figured it's too much work for an older version, but that technically doesn't yep. sound supported. Uh, I mean, I'm just a word guy, and sometimes I just pay attention to what words mean. <laughs> well, technically, <laughs> it's in long-term support. So yeah, that so means it gets reduced, It right? gets security fixes, but not new features. I guess this is a feature. Technically, this is a new feature. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, a good one. <laughs> not that I'm trying to justify things for Microsoft. Uh, the the interesting thing that uh, has been getting a little fun made of it is that MS fifteen zero eleven was found by uh, the a guy from this company called uh, Jazz Global Advisors. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he decided to to dub this, uh, to, you know, to give this vulnerability a name. Oh. Kind of like, you know, Heartbleed yeah. and Poodle and and Shell Shock and yep. so. But he called it Jasperg. That's no good. He just named it after. Him, his company, which I think is after na- named after himself. Um, That's not a dick thing to do at all. No. Yeah, it, it just means. It, yeah, it's like it's got to have a catchy name that people are going to remember. And mm-hmm. I understand you want people to remember your company, but nah, it's not going to. Yeah, and and you notice how it didn't really seem to catch on. <laughs> yeah. uh, what's interesting is the way he actually found it. Oh yeah. You um, see, he found the bug while working on a project for ICANN, the the company that or the group that actually controls the root domain uh, for DNS and uh, specifically looking into the security issues surrounding the release of new generic top-level domains and uh, for stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so the group policy issue was discovered during research uh, phase of that project but is unrelated to the new stuff. Specifically, I think what it was was uh, a lot of people for their domain, because it's based on real DNS, yeah. they use a fake top-level domain. Yeah. Like I think uh, the, the college I was helping out at on Tuesday there their domain is like mc.local for Mohawk yep, College. Yep. Uh, well, I think that .local is one of the new TLDs that's going to be coming out, right? Because it's for like local shopping and stuff, not for your LAN. Mm. But lots of LANs use it. Mm-hmm. So it means what if I could go and buy mc.local now, and now 
any of their machines that are out on the internet, I could return the wrong DNS and, and spoof them into talking to me. Huh. And I think that's how he found the security vulnerability. Hmm. Uh, was actually by noticing all these requests for uh, .local domains that don't actually exist. And so on, right? Uh, he says, so about the vulnerability, he says, it certainly doesn't work universally and it depends on some funky configuration and happenstance, but it works frequently enough to be of concern. Uh, we will release the specifics of other attack scenarios we're aware of at some future point, but for now it's important that folks patch and not become complacent because of the perceived on-land requirement. Right? Because, like you said, if you're on a laptop at a hotel connecting back to work, you're yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. And you're actually in a, a worse position than somebody on the land and so on. Right. He said that uh, the on-land is not a strict requirement, so please go patch. Uh, and then going on, he says, not only are Windows clients too trusting of the responses they get back from DNS, they can also be fairly easily tricked into downgrading to unauthenticated or unencrypted transit protocols, like being tricked into using WebDAV over HTTP instead of HTTPS. Hmm. And, and basically doing things where, you know, uh, like in this vulnerability, tricked into not checking the, the uh, um, authenticity of the server they're talking to. Because right? uh, SSLs vote more than just encryption, mm-hmm. right? It's also mm-hmm. about proving the identity of the remote side so right. that you're sure that, sure, you're having an encrypted conversation, but is it really with your bank or is you having is an encrypted right conversation with the bad guy, in which case he could decrypt it, right? Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Uh, so Microsoft rolled out a new feature to address the vulnerability called UNC Hardened Access, uh, which ensures the right authentication and in-transit encryption is carried out. Uh, hmm. So then uh, he says, uh, instead of being subject to the OS trying too hard to make communication work, the UNC infrastructure within Windows now allows the higher level resource requester, so the application actually trying to connect to something, to specify whether mutual authentication, meaning uh, making sure that both ends are the right ones, uh, integrity, that the message hasn't been modified in transit, and privacy, that it's encrypted so somebody not involved, one of the two parties in the transaction can read it. Uh, so this is the right general purpose solution to the problem. So they had to come up with a whole new framework where wow. when the program is, is requesting data from a remote site, it can say, I want to make sure, I need to make sure that the other end is really who they say they are. I need to make sure that nothing's modified as it goes across the internet. And I want to make sure that it's encrypted so other people can't read it and so on. Of course, it seems that this uh, suggests that there are a bunch of tools, uh, unless a tool knows to do this, it's going to default to doing it insecurely. Right, very true. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be years and years of, of sort of, way of ways of doing this sort of set. Yeah, well, it, I'd say that Microsoft's kind of stuck here because they can't just break everybody's application. No. They must have been, I mean, when they when they started figuring out how, how this was going to have to be fixed, they must have been just, yeah, like, just shaking like, their heads. Oh, like, what are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Schmidt said that there's an outstanding issue that Microsoft has not addressed where Active Directory clients could leak DNS requests to the open internet. Mm. Uh, the internet's DNS infrastructure will try to resolve these queries as it would with any other uh, providing pointers to the right sources rather than results from the local Active Directory controller yeah, for an enterprise yeah. domain. Uh. So, you know, somebody using that .local uh, stuff could end up getting an answer of, oh, here's a website over here, when they're actually trying to find something that should have been on an internal IP. Uh, he said that during the research he did for ICANN, more than 200,000 Active Directory clients reached out to the uh, oh, man. server he set up via a series of customized DNS registrations. So he bought a bunch of .local top-level domains, like land.local or something, uh, and he got over 200,000 requests or 200,000 unique clients. I'm not sure he doesn't quite say. That is either way. Yeah. 
So there's a lot of these requests leaking out to the internet, mostly just wasting the internet, honestly, but they're small, so it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. But <laughs> Get your uh, noise off my line. All, all of a sudden, those domains can start becoming active. Right? You remember we had the same problem with um, SSL certificates. Remember a bunch of people had like... Uh, uh, the regist- the certificate authorities used to let you just buy a certificate for like 192.168.0.1 and then you could use that on anybody's LAN because it was a valid certificate, yeah. trusted. Yeah. But, you know, you could, you could basically replace, if two people had the certificate for that same IP address, either one of them would work and that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. And so now they have more uh, stringent requirements where you have to use a real domain. You can't make up, you know, your own top-level domain Partly because a bunch of people that did, now those domains actually exist. Right? And it's causing all kinds of problems. Hmm. What a mess for Microsoft. Well, at least and they've have, got uh, some kind of fix. Yep, I have a bunch of links to other coverage. Uh, Sophos had some good stuff in there. Yeah. And then uh, ThreatPost and Krebs and so on. All in the show notes. And you can go read up on your own. If you're curious about this or you have a Windows network you need to manage, might be worth reading mm-hmm. a little bit about. Hey, Alan. Would this be a good spot to uh, stop and tell you about my cell phone? Sure. All right. Well, I have a great cell phone and a great cell phone provider. I got the Nexus 5 on Ting, and Ting is mobile that makes sense, my mobile service provider. And here's what I love about Ting. No contract, and you, I, me, and you only have to pay for what you or me would use. I think this is a really nice model, and I think all of the cell phone companies will eventually have to go to it. Oh, what do you got there, Alan? What do you got I there? have my Nexus 6. Oh, yeah. That's one better than yours. It is. You're right. It is. And I kind of make me jelly. I want one. That's a big screen, it- though. And you yeah. put it in that huge case, which makes it even, which makes it even well, The case bigger. is not huge, right? It's just a little rubber thing. Oh, okay. It's just a really big phone. Actually, I, off Amazon, <laughs> I just ordered a different case that has a belt hook. Because, oh, because you're uh, an IT guy. I, yeah, I like, I like having it on the belt. Yeah. Um, it does fit in my pocket. Like Most people are like, how do you fit that in your pocket? I don't know. My pockets are big. Yeah, yeah. Maybe... maybe uh... My pants are used to holding very large objects. Wow, there we go. I was... <laughs> Okay, there we go. See, there you have it. So we go over there to techsnap.ting.com. The Nexus 6 is one of the devices you can grab. In fact, if you want, you can also just grab a SIM card and then just bring whatever you want. Ting has a whole BYOD section you can check out to see what cards are compatible. You can also grab a GSM card now, so you can do CMA or GSM. In fact, they just did a great Google Hangout on that if you want to grab it. And you can now officially bring an iPhone 6 or iPhone 6 Plus to Ting if it's unlocked. And speaking of unlocked... A brand new set of cell phone unlocking rules in the United States are going into effect. Uh, they have to be. They have to. Uh, they started yesterday, so uh, awesome. mandated, uh, I believe, by the uh, FCC. But I'm not. I don't know the details of it. Yes, but. I think it's uh, the DMCA has provisions that lets the Librarian of Congress decide when yeah. things should be allowed. Yeah. And so uh, it was called the Consumer Code for Wireless Service, and uh, Ting has a whole great post up, including uh, there is a catch, uh, but they'll tell you all about it up on their blog. Go to techsnap.ting.com to get started. Techsnap.ting.com gets you a $25 credit if you have a device that'll work, like, say, an iPhone 6 or an iPhone 5 or pretty much any of the great Android devices. Uh, and if you don't have a phone, well, then take $25 off your phone. Also works great for hotspots. TechSnap.ting.com. No hold customer service. Only pay for what you use. I think it's a pretty neat system, and they have a really, really, really great online dashboard to manage your account. You can go check it all out. Everything from feature phones to the highest-end phones over at Ting. TechSnap.ting.com. Go over there, check them out, and then visit that blog. See what I'm talking about with these new unlocking rules just so you're up to date. That's all carriers, not a Ting-specific thing. It's just great information that Ting puts out there. Might as well update yourself on that. And then do me a favor. Before you leave the Ting website, just swing back to that front page and try out that savings calculator. 
That is really the thing that kind of puts it all in perspective for you. You put in what you actually use into there, and you can see how much you might save over two years. It's, I mean, I'm saving over $2,000. It's a really big deal. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan, moving right along, I believe we have a little Internet Explorer story to cover, don't we? Using perhaps some zero days? Uh, what? Yeah. So um, the headline for the story, I, I just modified our copy of it because it's misleading a little bit. Uh, but um, they say Chinese hackers compromised Forbes.com using IE zero day uh, or IE and flash zero day exploits. The interesting, first of all, uh, they didn't actually compromise Forbes.com using the zero days. What they did okay. is compromise Forbes.com and then use the ah. zero days to infect the visitors, which gotcha. was the point, right? Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so a Chinese advanced persistent threat group uh, was able to chain together two zero-day vulnerabilities, uh, one against Adobe's Flash Player and one against Internet Explorer 9 and above, oh. uh, to comp- and then uh, compromise Forbes.com and install the exploit. And Forbes has got to get a ton of traffic. Yes. It's like the 68th most popular website in the U.S. or yeah, something like that. makes sense. Uh, and in particular, it's very popular against the type of people that this Chinese group wanted to attack, which is people that work in governments and uh, at defense contractors. <laughs> uh, good, uh, so the group's aim was to gain access to companies at several U.S. defense and finance firms by setting up a watering hole attack on a site uh, that would then drop a malicious DLL onto their system. Uh, so it's actually not clear how Forbes' site was actually compromised, uh, how they got into the Forbes site to change some of the stuff around to insert the uh, virus. Yeah. But um, on Forbes' website, there was a flash-powered uh, oh. widget on the site called Thought of the Day, which is like somebody's head in a little thought bubble. Oh, jeez. It's like a quote or something. Yeah, I'm not quite sure why that needed That doesn't even flash, sound needed, dude. Yeah. Uh, but what the that. attackers managed to do is change the URL that loaded that widget to point to their website and load their flash widget, which exploited the Adobe Zero Day and uh, infected the machine. Do you, Alan, do you think we got to get to the – I mean, maybe this is overreaction on my part, and I am a more, bit more of a flash hater than you are. But uh, I don't hate it, but do you think we got to get to the point where businesses need to say what is the, what is the advantage, what is the trade-off for using flash? Like every time we make – every time we decide to use flash, it has to be for a really good business reason. And, and things like tip of the no. day doesn't seem like it's worth the risk. Well, tip and, of the day, maybe not. But um, in particular, the, the – if people just stopped using Flash, then the bad guys will just find the next true, easiest thing. True. So it's not like yeah, it doesn't. This yeah. is dropping Flash wouldn't solve any of these problems necessarily because the bad guys don't go away necessarily. So. Exactly. That makes sense. Uh, then the flaw would also uh, use uh, an Internet Explorer nine zero day to do uh, address space layout randomization bypass uh, to be able to still infect the machine even if it had the more advanced uh, attack mitigation features turned on. So even if you had the, the fancier stuff from Microsoft turned on, it used a zero day in IE9 to bypass that. Jeez. How, how can that be bypassed? I don't, that doesn't seem like... Yeah, the whole point of yeah. ASLR is to stop attacks. <laughs> yeah. But all we ever hear about are ASLR bypasses. How can... Yeah, and why does the browser have the ability to bypass address-based well, randomization? It, it was a... It was a oh, right, right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right, right. But... Uh, and then, yeah, as you can see from the diagram, after they got infected on one person's uh, machine at random defense contractor then spread over the network and uh, try to take over all the machines at the defense contractor and start exfiltrating as much data as they could. So the Adobe bug, which was a buffer overflow in Flash, uh, was patched back on December 9th. Okay. Uh, but the ASLR mitigation bypass wasn't patched until uh, yesterday's Patch Tuesday, um, or I guess two days ago, Patch Tuesday. 
and that's why the story is just coming out now. Because uh, now the patch the fix is out. Yeah, because so the Forbes uh, site was compromised uh, a couple of months ago, mm. but uh, they didn't want to spill the beans until Microsoft had fixed the hole. Uh, you know, Adobe fixed the hole a while ago. Yeah. Uh, the release of the details was timed to coincide with Microsoft's patch. I just said that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and then uh, both Invincia and iSight Partners have uh, breakdowns of uh, how the attack actually worked. Uh, but it's, I'd still like to know how the attackers got into Forbes.com to modify the content there. But guess, that could have just been a phishing attack. Yeah, or, or you know, some low-hanging fruit kind of, you know, who yeah. knows, right? That's a, that is an interesting one, though. And uh, to grab Forbes is a pretty good get. Yeah, and th- that's kind of the, the, the holy grail thing we talked about, right? Back even like first, second episode of TechSnap. It's like if you can compromise some big news site, like Forbes.com or CNN or whatever, yep. and stick a virus on there, you can affect everybody. Yep. Now, to avoid being seen, these guys only targeted people from certain companies. So they don't try to run the exploit on every machine they saw because they wanted it to go undetected for longer. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know what else? The other thing that strikes me about this story is uh, this is a pretty legitimate hack. I mean, quote unquote, you get you get you get a certain group of users from a pretty important place. You go after even more specific set of users that you found there. But yet, well, the only place I've heard about this really is here on the show. Like, mm-hmm. it's interesting, like how the bullshit uh, gets all of the attention, and then stuff like this that's almost kind of semi legit, pretty much gets no attention at all, except yeah. for like from outlets yeah. like us. This this is the real cyber. Yeah. Attack. Yeah, isn't it just interesting? You know, it the way wasn't designed works? to disrupt anybody. It was designed to be undetected. Yeah, the real kind right. you want, where you want information and you want to try to get yes. in there There's for a while. Steal all the word docs from the company and then hope they never find out you were there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's not the uh, you know the whole you know, cyber terrorism, bad guys, hacking. Spy. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's just it just kind of gets ignored, maybe because it just doesn't fit into an overall narrative, but. Uh, yeah. All right, Alan. Any other it's uh, a, a very good um, use, um, I guess, case study in a uh, watering hole attack. Yes. Yeah. And it's uh, much cooler than the one I had personal experience years ago. I've told the story before on the show, but uh, years ago, our local NBC news affiliate had their site compromised. And a lot of my clients, because they're a Seattle news yeah. outlet, visit their website. And so in one day, I got several calls from several clients that all got infected. And of course, one of them was a terminal server. And it was, you know, you go to the web page in Internet Explorer and you get infected. And that's all you had to do. You didn't have to click on anything. Um, and so I just went around. They of course, tried by downloading. Yeah. And, of course, once I figured out how to fix it once, I was able to apply that fix to all the computers. So it wasn't a huge deal. Right. But it was a little mini version of this. And it was, it was, uh, it, it just, it just struck a whole bunch of people at once. So I think the other big one was, uh, I remember we talked about uh, somebody compromised the forum that all the iPhone developers use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and yeah. then it got into Facebook yeah. and Apple yeah. and and a bunch and like every big company that makes apps for iPhone and so on. Right, it wasn't they, like an Apple one; it was like a community one, right? Yeah, it, it was just yeah. a community like. And they got forum, Facebook website. devs, and they got yeah, like and they got devs that so like every major company that makes iPhone apps has yeah. their dev visit this page. Yeah, and yeah, uh, they just you know injected a bit of ju- uh, an iframe into the top of the forum software, and it was like VBullet, right? It's a common forum software that. You know, that kind of thing happens all the time. But because they specifically targeted this one site, they got all these people inside Apple and Facebook and otherwise. Yeah. And they probably only got caught because of Facebook's uh, network security detected these outbound connections to this weird place and was like, what's going on here? 
and looked into it. Fascinating story, Alan. Thank you for finding that one and yes. bringing it to our attention. Any other thoughts? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. All right. Well, then I got a thought, and that's IX Systems. Head over to IXSystems.com slash TechSnap right now. Go check out IX Systems rigs powered by those Intel yep. Xeon processors, which are totally bad arse. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And uh, we've talked a lot about TechSnap, or I'm sorry, on TechSnap, we've talked a lot about IX Systems. And one yes. thing that we kind of touch around but we can't ever really give it to you in a way they could, is some of their production practices. And so they've done a what, on, their, on their What's New section on their site, they've done a post on why our production practices make us great. Uh, and they say, uh, you know, they go through, I love the picture of, I love the pictures of inside the... Like, uh, yeah, you, you don't actually think of an actual assembly line, but that's what they have. Yeah. And, but you can see those machines where they're sitting on the... They're actually plugged into power and monitor and network because they're actually running uh, a live CD on them and burning in the machine and making sure all the components work and testing it for is like two or three days before they ship it to you to make sure that when you get it, everything's going to work. Yeah, yeah, and IX Systems just takes this sort of careful approach to everything they do with their customer relationships, with their hardware partners, and with the communities that the hardware that they build runs, like the FreeBSD communities and open source communities. Yep. Uh, and you really, really, really get a sense of that when you actually attend an event. Uh, IX Systems will have some folks down at scale, I think, next week. They go to all these events to go out there and meet the people that are actually deploying this stuff in production. And you can have an open conversation with them about your challenges. And it's, it's very rewarding because it's, um, it's not a one-way relationship where you kind of feel like they're selling you, selling you, selling you. It, it very much feels like a, a, a collaboration in yep. designing the right, the right components for your infrastructure. And it really feels like kind of having like that backup expert line you can call and be like, I'm thinking about doing this. I've never really ventured into this territory and I have some questions about this. And the peace of mind you have because the people that are answering those questions are oftentimes literally the people that either invented the software or maintain it today. Like that's, yep. that's an amazing advantage IX Systems has. Nobody yep. has that. Literally nobody has that. But I was literally just talking to uh, I, uh, somebody, uh, Canadian government office uh, needed a, a reference from IX for Canada. So I've been talking to them. And they said the same thing I've heard from a bunch of people when they get a quote from IX. They're like, it looks like it's missing a zero. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't this cost more? <laughs> and and that's, that's the big difference is because uh, IX is leveraging this open source software and because their goal is to build a business and make, and make their customers one. happy, not just yep. they don't have the bloat, they don't have big company syndrome, right? They they don't have this whole departments of people that exist just because that's what a big company has and stuff. Uh, but yeah, is it even surprised me when I started using them that it was actually less expensive than just buying the parts and putting it together myself, and I was getting all their expertise their QA process, their warranty on top of the manufacturer stuff. And I was very, very surprised. Indeed. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go see why Alan and I have been surprised, and we keep getting more and more surprised all the time. Yes. Some good stuff. Uh, and uh, also, also, they have a, an upcoming webinar series. Oh, really? Uh, a fireside chat with two ZFS gurus. Oh, that's right. You told me about this. <laughs> now, do you know when, though? It uh, should be March 17th. Uh, I think we'll be doing more than one of them, but that's the first one. It was supposed to be sooner, but uh, the other ZFS expert, uh, Josh Petzl, who we've interviewed on uh, BSD Now twice, he has great war stories about ZFS. Um, and, and just 
in general, Sisyphean War Stories, he's a superstar. Um, he has to actually travel uh, up to Canada for to fix oh. something for a customer. Oh. Uh, and so he couldn't do it the first week of March, and the second week of March, I'm in Tokyo, and you guys so. are busy. So once you guys yeah. manage to sync up, yes, once we sync up, we'll be doing that, and, uh, and we'll it'll tell be recorded, them, and it'll and be we'll awesome. give people. We probably have, we'll probably have time to give people a heads up on the show. Yep. So that'd be cool. Well, I'll I'll, I'll check that out. Also, <laughs> ixsystems.com slash techsnap has the uh, white paper you can download. If you've been hearing what we've been saying, but you want to grease the wheels a little bit, maybe with the people above you, or especially if they're having some troubles kind of totally locking in on the differences, check out that white paper. I think that'll help out. Okay, Alan. So this next story, uh, I just, like, I get it, I, and I, I see the usefulness of it, but I'm not sure why it's Facebook, and it kind of is weird. Uh, maybe after um, you tell me a little bit about it, I'll understand it a little more. But it's called well, it's called Threat Exchange, and it's like yes. an it's like a like a platform to exchange cyber threat threats. Intelligence, okay. Threat intelligence. Threat um, intelligence. Specifically, it's for companies to share information they have about threats that are being used against them, but also against their users. Uh, so, for example, when Facebook sees that you know somebody's people's accounts are getting hacked and keep linking to this website. They can share that with other people, like uh, some of the other people on the platform already are Pinterest, Yahoo, Tumblr, Twitter, Bitly, and Dropbox. Um, so they can be like, hey, Bitly, don't let anybody create Bitly links to this URL or stop them or whatever because it's known to be bad, right? Uh, or hmm. they can, hmm. uh, okay. they're going okay. to have malware samples. So when they actually see uh, malware getting linked to, they'll download it and throw it in this threat intelligence thing with like, you know, the MD5 and SHA-256 hash of it or whatever. And then that can automatically be pushed out to the virus scanners companies. And right, you can go into blacklists and it basically it'll allow everybody to kind of compile together the information they've got about what is being used against them and against their users in one place with an actual API so you can do it programmatically. Because right now, a couple of companies share intelligence manually, yeah, but it's like with... Word documents or, or, or you know, spreadsheets or, or just yeah, files. That's, and that's no good. It's just not organized. It's kind of an ad hoc way, whereas this will provide an actual API so everybody can do this programmatically and it'll just, the information will move around more quickly mm-hmm. uh, and make sure that we can, when a new threat shows up, right, when we see the URL for this Flash exploit, we can start blocking it everywhere more quickly and make sure that people can't tweet links to it and share them on Facebook to spread it. Uh, so I think one of the main Seems points pretty will just be stopping uh, malware from going viral. That actually does make a lot of sense. And I didn't really yeah. consider the fact that they are sort of the perfect sensor they're network. They're on the front line. Yeah. They, they, basically, they built this system internally and then were like, well, we might as well let everybody else uh, put data into it as well. The reason why it struck me as interesting um, is because it's not really related, but you know we have the whole CISPA thing going on right now, which is all about information sharing. And well, I, they mentioned that. So, uh, oh, really? Uh, Facebook hopes that the initial partner list they have will grow to include other technology companies, by which I think they mean Microsoft, Google, Apple, so on, uh, with a large internet footprint. Microsoft, for example, has developed its own information sharing platform it calls Interflow. And the FBI announced last winter that they released their unclassified version of its malware repositories in hopes of spurring public-private information sharing hmm. uh, of threat data. And then, yeah. yes, like you saw, CISPA is trying to mandate this kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I think something like what Facebook is doing will probably do better. Uh, partly just because it'll be managed by the people that actually deal with this, <laughs> yeah. not by yeah. some 
It'll cons- be more uh, consulting company that got hired by the government to build an API for this or something. Yeah, um, and it, it will be more uh, driven by the technical requirements. Yes. Uh, what's interesting is Facebook uh, actually kind of did a better job on this than they do on Facebook itself. Uh, specifically, they say um, well, it's open for free to everyone, but um, most of the heavy lifting is done by Facebook's infrastructure, so you know nobody's having to pay for the storage of all these malware samples and stuff. Right, right. Uh, the platform developers were also cognizant of some of the concerns enterprises have about sharing threat data from both a competitive you know, you don't want to give your competitors information about what threats you're, are being used against you or whatever, yeah, yeah. but also risk management. Uh, privacy controls are built into threat exchange that not only sanitize information about the members, so when someone posts a sample of malware that's been used against them, it doesn't say who it came from. It just says, here's malware that's being used against someone, make sure you block it. Um, it also uh, allows collaborators to share data with everybody in the exchange or only a particular subset at first. So it, even though it's designed to be used by everybody, uh, a couple of companies can use it to just share data between themselves while they're actively being attacked and then share it with everybody later. Right? So it'll even be used for private sharing of, uh, of threat intelligence between just a couple of people that are all being attacked by the same guy or something. Right? That's pretty slick. Like we saw, uh, for example, with the, the watering hole attack we saw earlier with the Flash Zero Day. Um, it downloads this DLL and runs it on your system. And it was targeting, you know, like three certain defense contractors and a finance company. Well, those four companies could use this platform to share the, the signatures of that DLL and other stuff they saw and URLs they saw to make sure they each block it but not expose that to everybody until Microsoft had the patch out and then it shared the data or whatever. Hmm. Or they could also share the data without being concerned that it'll, it'll point back to them. Hmm. Uh, and now, in addition, they also pull in um, yeah. uh, open source intelligence data and, oh. and put it in as well. Now, how do they make money on this thing? Is there are they going to? This, this isn't. This is uh, helping Facebook block malware. Quicker. They figure that's just good enough for them. It's the values there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they they build this uh, just to use internally and, and so on, and then they open it up because why not have everybody else throw in URLs they should blacklist as well? Yeah. And you think about uh, it, it almost reminds me a little bit of how some of the early day. It's not the same at all because it's way cooler. Uh, but some of the early day spam blacklists were, were just different different large mail service providers started getting together and collaborating on yep. who do we know are spammers. Yep. And uh, it has some challenges. I mean, I've, I have yeah, had and to fight it is that kind sometimes. of uh, an API version of the, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, full disclosure mailing list. Yeah. Right? It's like we've seen this malware sample. It's and, like a and, more real-time version too. Yeah, yeah. It's, some, it's kind of... <laughs> Combines virus total with URL blacklists mm-hmm. and spam blacklists and IP lists and, and just says, we keep seeing this pattern from the attackers. So watch out. If you see this pattern too, then you should look in this direction. Well, and, and you know, uh, they'll be able to say with some, at least, you know, for the people that participate, like this particular piece of malware is really spreading fast. Like this is one that's going nuts. Well, in uh, particular, now we can block the sharing of it via Facebook. Yeah. But what I would, stop what would getting. be fascinating from like the standpoint of our show is if Facebook could release some data, like that piece of malware spread at this rate, or was yep. you know it clicked on by these many people, and we don't have to get specific on names and who, but like some sort of data so we get an idea of how malware does move around, and maybe that'll give us an idea of how to prevent it too. Well, I've I've signed up to get access to the data feed. <laughs> oh, really? Cool. Yep. Oh, good one. Uh, so they also go to f- on to say uh, if some reasonable large internet properties cooperate on attacks, 
uh, they've seen and respond to, uh, the vast majority of the internet will be safer. Uh, we want to bring in more companies like that and eventually broaden it uh, beyond big companies to just any small web properties and individual researchers because that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. Like yeah. uh, that caffeine guy that found the uh, that watches the exploit kits and found those uh, uh, flash show days a couple of weeks ago. You know, having him on that platform and pushing those hashes into that platform uh, in such a way that it's not necessarily identifying him uh, could be very valuable to everybody. Right. Uh, and so uh, I think definitely getting opened up to individual researchers and smaller web properties as well, so it's not only just the big companies using it, would uh, be very good. I wonder, uh, will companies like Microsoft drop their, what, what was theirs, like th- ThreatStream or whatever they call it? Uh, will they? Oflow or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, ThreatFlow, I don't know, AntFlow. If oh. they will drop their, if will they? Or, Interflow. Or, okay, Interflow. Will they drop their system? Will they connect the systems? Will they right. compete? Because the Facebook one has an API, hopefully yeah. there would at least be an interconnect uh, and Facebook would be able to pull in intelligence from the Microsoft one or something yeah, or vice versa. But uh, I definitely think an industry-led one that in particular puts emphasis on individual researchers and research companies um, might do better than a government-powered one. Hmm. Uh, they say, we want to create a forum where we can share attack and threat intelligence in an easy way and share it with as many people who want to receive it. Uh, the classic example of an attack you're investigating where only you and a few companies are targeted, uh, those companies can then collaborate together on that particular attack and share data. Perhaps they don't feel it's appropriate to go wider because it may tip their hand and alert the attacker or, or they would uh, not be beneficial in investigation if others started poking at their infrastructure in the yeah, meantime yeah. and possibly disrupt the work they're trying to do. Yeah. So uh, that's why they have those extra privacy features in there. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see uh, what that results in and uh, how I'm hoping to see lots of companies jump on that. Yeah, I think you've changed. I mean, I, was, I wasn't like against it, but I, I didn't quite get it. Now you've, I think you've really helped me kind of click it together and why it actually is a good thing, even though it is a Facebook thing, because I'm a little skeptical when it's Facebook, but it actually makes a lot of sense that it would be them. They're kind of in the perfect position to do this. Yeah, and uh, with them teaming up with Bitly and Twitter in particular. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And Dropbox, so they, uh, you and know, people are hosting the malware on Dropbox, we can get it knocked teaming off Teaming up quicker. with Twitter is encouraging because they're kind of, compet- kind of competitors, which makes exactly. me think that they can make this work. And they have uh, Tumblr and uh, Pinterest as well. Okay. Wow. Uh, so there's a lot of data growing. Then that's that will definitely be a lot easier to shut down malware being spread via click this link yeah. on Twitter and Facebook and so on. No kidding. And I think that will make a big difference. Um, any other thoughts on the story? Uh, no. All right. Well, uh, our, I'm, you know what? I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be really interested to see if you get anything from that data feed. That'd be mm-hmm. really interesting to see that. You let us know. All right, well, I'll tell you about something quite interesting, and that is DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com right now. Why? Because DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server you get root access to. I'm looking at the uh, technology page on the DigitalOcean website. You can go over there right now, DigitalOcean.com, and click on the features link. They have an SSD-only cloud. All of the servers from the beginning were SSD. Uh, They have a very flexible API. You can take advantage to load the rigs on there and all of this stuff. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it in a second. But I just want to give you from a snapshot why we here on the TechSnap Show think this is a great setup. Uh, SSD hard drives, all in. Tier 1 bandwidth, they're all in. You can provision a server in under a minute. And that's that's if you just do it manually. If you take advantage of the APIs, it's, it's nuts. But here's the best part. It's so, so freaking valuable. So not only do you get set up and going really fast... 
but it, it only costs $5 a month for the first baseline server. And for $5 a month, you get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. Uh, th- and for $10, you get uh, a gig of RAM and two terabytes of transfer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good deal. It's a really, really good deal. And it's really good stuff. You can run FreeBSD. You can run all the different Linuxes you might want to run up there. You got one-click push deployments of a lot of really popular software stacks, incredible tutorials written up, lots of new ones going in for FreeBSD right now. Yes. Uh, all managed. And they have this uh, system for requesting new features. Oh, really? Uh, that's know, it's cool. It's actually a company. That's how FreeBSD got on there is... It yes, went on the right. list, and it, yes. it got the most votes yep. of any feature ever. Yeah, yeah. You can check out the community but, you know, section you can, on their site too. Yeah, yeah. You can. You, I think you get uh, ten votes in total that you can spend on on the different features you'd like them to implement, and you get the votes back when they actually implement or cancel one of the features. That's neat. Uh, and it allows the the community to decide where they should go next. Yeah, I like that a lot. And it's all managed with this yeah, awesome it's control It's a company band. that actually listens to the users. So, like, if you're going to go up there and you're going to deploy a free BSD rig, like, you've done it. Like, isn't that the control It makes it so simple. You can look out all of the different – so you mentioned, like, there's a higher-end rig and there's several other higher-end rigs, right? They're all right here in the, in the DigitalOcean control panel. You click the one you want and it provisions the server for you. You're ready to go. Like, it's that fast. But here's the best part. You can try it out two months for free when you use our promo code SNAPOcean. Snap Ocean, lowercase, all one word. It'll give you a $10 credit. You can try out one of the bigger boy rigs or try out that $5 rig two months for free. I've got three $5 rigs. Uh, and the reason why I've done this is for a couple. One is it's an Arch-based box, and I want to kind of keep it low on how much stuff it has going on. And I've got an Ubuntu one that we're running and a different Ubuntu one that we're running for different things. Uh, and, you know, it's a mixture of things like BitTorrent Sync, OwnCloud, Ruby on Rails. Uh, we've got uh, from time to time we, we need to run like a secondary XMPP server up there or, or uh, a NiceCast box or whatever it is. Yeah, and that's the other thing is you perfect. can – $5 is cheap, but you can also rent them hourly for yeah. Point one five cents an hour, and also it's pretty popular in our community. People just go get a DigitalOcean droplet and use that as their Minecraft server or their Mm -hmm. Mumble server because it's often cheaper than going and getting like an official Minecraft, you know, like like package that you would buy that's Minecraft hosting. Those ones are definitely more expensive than $5. You just deploy a DigitalOcean droplet, you get root access to the box, it's yours, and you can manage it easy, and they've got tutorials to get you going. Uh, Lots of great resources, and with that promo code, SNAPOcean, you can try it out two months for free when you visit DigitalOcean.com. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Hey, uh, so we are at the uh, halfway mark-ish in the show, which means it's time for everybody to go download their HD versions of BSD Now. Time for a change. Episode 76 came out, uh, well, just a little bit ago. Yes, uh, we interview Henning Bauer about OpenNTPD. Uh, especially, it turned out, we did the interview uh, because it was uh, they finally got the portable version going again, and mm-hmm. it was a bunch of interesting news. And it so happens that uh, we interviewed him from a hackathon they were having in Australia. Uh, and at that uh, hackathon, they actually invented a new feature where your NTP daemon can go out to a website over HTTPS and find out what time it is. Now, it doesn't use that to actually sync your time because it's not accurate to you know, uh, microseconds like you want, but it uses it to make sure the time the time server is giving you is legitimate. So this way, a, a, a rogue time server can't mm. cause you to, to get the wrong time <laughs> yeah. because if it's more than a couple of minutes off what an HTTP server says it is, which you verified it's a, a server you trust with an SSL certificate, then it throws out the result and tries a different NTP server. That's slick. Yeah, I was like, you know, he, he talked in the interview about how all the standards for the authentication stuff of making sure the NTP server is legit were all horrible. 
you know, they require yeah. like that more lines of code than all of the NTP daemon is or uh, client is already and a bunch of things like that. And then they just kind of thought up this really simple, elegant solution. It's like, yeah, that's that's a great idea. Why didn't anybody think of that a long time ago? Episode 76, Time for a Change. JupiterBroadcasting.com. You can also find all of the show notes for this program over there. So you can, if you're over there getting links that we talked about anyways, open up another tab and uh, get BSD now going. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Okay, Alan. Uh, in fact, hold on one more thing. Isn't there a new segment introduced in this episode too? Yes. Uh, we did a new discussion segment where it's uh, – Less showing off a website and telling you what's happening and just Chris and I uh, talking and giving thoughts about something. And we compared uh, VPN solutions. We talked about OpenVPN, IPsec with uh, OpenBSD or FreeBSD. um, uh, What else do we do? OpenSSH, Tor, and a bunch of different things. Cool. That sounds like a good segment. Advantages and disadvantages to each and, uh, you know, uh, the various encryption modes like uh, encrypt then Mac, encrypt and Mac, or Mac and encrypt, et cetera. Cool. All right, I'm definitely watching that. Thanks, Alan. All right. Well, Alan, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit like nobody did this week over at techsnap.reddit.com. And Alan, our first email comes in from Trey. We got two questions from Trey. I'll do them back to back. Um, Or two emails, I guess I should say. Here we go. He says, hi, Alan. Well, hey, Trey. This is Chris. Mm -hmm. Hi, Hi, Trey. Uh, He says, I had a question uh, on redundancy in a ZFS pool. I've heard you recommend several times that people use groups of mirrored pairs in their pools, but I was wondering why RAID Z would or wouldn't be the best solution for anything over two drives. For example, I was wanting to build a NAS with six drives. I could use three pairs of drives in my pool, or I could use RAID Z2 or Z3. My problem comes with drive failure. We can simplify things by not worrying about additional failure during resilvering okay he'll accept that say i have two random drive failures though out of my six drives there are 15 possible combinations of two drives and there are three of those that would result in all data lost boy he's really worried about this i understand there's a bit of overhead with calculating parity on raid z setups and that mirrored drives have a really good read performance but even something as small as six drives should be able to saturate a gigabit port or two right for a small office or home setup is there really any reason we should use anything other than raid z uh, yes and no. Uh, the biggest advantage, obviously, to mirrors is performance. Uh, if you put all six drives into a RAID Z2 or 3, you get the IOPS, the random read performance, of one drive because all six of those have to work in tandem, right? Uh, whereas if you do mirrors, you get the read IOPS of the total number of drives you have and the write IOPS of the total number of sets you have. Mm, okay. Right. So if you did uh, three sets of two drives, you would have the read IOPS of six drives and the write IOPS of three drives. Whereas with ZFS with all six drives in a Z2 or Z3, you get the performance of one drive. Yeah. Now, that's probably enough, right? If you, if you have one gigabit link, then your regular spinning hard drives can do 120 plus megabytes a second. So that will be more than enough to saturate your gigabit LAN and you'll be happy. Now, if you're backing up, v- if you're running VMs off of it where you can have a lot of small reads and writes all over the place, yeah. then you're going to be more worried about the performance. Okay. Um, the other big advantage to mirrors is if you do all six drives as a RAID Z2 or 3 or something, if you want to make the pool bigger later, you have to add in that same set. You'd have to add another six drives. Whereas if you did it as mirrors with uh, six two-drive mirrors, you could add just two more drives and the pool gets bigger. Uh-huh. 
and you can keep doing that. Uh, and also, when you want to replace drives with bigger ones, you could replace just two of those six drives with bigger ones, and all of a sudden you get that more space. Hmm. Whereas with Z, you don't get the more space until you replace all six with bigger drives. Hmm. So mirrors give you more flexibility. But yes, they do have that uh, greater chance of failure. Uh, and so that's where your RAID Z2 or Z3 uh, would protect you better. And you get the better space efficiency. You get more usable space. I like that. Uh, with Z3, it would be the same as three mirrors. Uh, but with Z2, you would actually get more space than you could out of your uh, mirror configuration. Hmm. So most people probably want RAID Z2. It's probably good enough. Uh, Z3 is uh, with only six drives. That you're, you know, you're only getting half the storage space. So then uh, mirrors definitely look uh, better because of the performance. Uh, but yeah, for most home setups, RAID Z2 is probably the best. But uh, mirrors do give you that much more better flexibility. Like if, if Chris always, was doing a setup for his, yeah. his setup, I would just recommend mirrors. Yeah. Even though it would cost more in the long run because mm-hmm. you need more hard drives to store right. the same amount of stuff, it gives them that flexibility to change just two drives at a time uh, Which when have, he has to upgrade. I, and, and, and so far, I've never had an as where I haven't needed to do that. Yeah, it, that has always been like drive failures. They do happen. Yes, um, needing to swap out and have that flexibility always happens every time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so mirrors definitely have that extra flexibility, and uh, you might be very glad you chose mirrors later on. Uh, uh, you can yeah. do mirrors that are deeper. Like with your six drives, you could do two mirror pairs of three drives each, and then you can ha- lose up to two drives out of each mirror set, but then you're only getting two drives worth of storage, and that's probably outside your budget. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, he's got a second, he sent a second email, and I think it's the same tray. Could be a different tray. Uh, and he wants to ask us about refurbished servers. He says, hi, Chris and Ellen. Uh, great show, all that fun stuff. It might be a different tray, actually. I wanted to get your guys' opinions on using refurbished server hardware. I've been looking at some used racks, rack mount servers, about four to eight years old. Definitely not going to be used for any production stuff, but maybe as a headless test server to throw in the closet, maybe play around with some virtualization on it. Thoughts? Uh, there's a couple of gotchas you have to watch out for, but uh, I bought one of these machines. It was uh, the it was a it was an E5504, so it was two generations before they started going with the, like the i7 and E3 type processors. Oh, okay. Uh, so now I guess that's four, five, six generations old, something like that. Um, the problem it had is the disk controller built into it that was uh, does the hot swapping, uh, like the the SAS expander. Yeah, uh, doesn't support drives over two terabytes. Oh yeah. So it it that could be a drive. When I started to stick uh, three terabyte drives in it, mm-hmm. and I ended up actually going to IX and buying a new server and using that and filling the one I bought off eBay uh, from a, one of these used rack mount places uh, with one terabyte drives. So I'm using it now with one terabyte drives, but it did kind of kick me that. Uh, my three terabyte drives wouldn't work in it. <clears throat> yeah, no kidding, right? Uh, the other thing is specifically mentioning virtualization. Uh, the difference between four years and eight years old will make a difference there. Uh, you want to check which processor it has and make sure that processor supports the virtualization offload features you're going to want. Mm-hmm. Right? If it doesn't have the hardware virtualization, then it's not going to work for that very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unless you're and, okay with slow virtualization. Right. Well, if you want to use something like Beehive, it's required. Right, uh, and I think and it I is think for like KVM, KVM and is required as well. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking like when I said that though, I was thinking like VirtualBox. I would right. work. Yeah. But what are you learning uh, then? Exactly. Uh, so you, 
virtual. You know, especially when you're looking at the used mm-hmm. stuff, getting stuff that's like you know the E5500 or E5600 that has those features yeah. is only slightly more than the older processors that don't have it. Uh, so I know you're you're buying used to save money, but if the difference is a hundred dollars between having the features you want and not, then yeah, uh, your best bet there is ARC ARK dot dot com has the stat sheets on like every processor they ever made, and uh, just double check that it's going to do what you want it to do. There you go, and be aware that older stuff will have limits where it doesn't like big drives. Uh, I actually ended up kind of lucky now. A couple years ago, I did buy a used server. One of the only times I've ever really done it for myself. And I made it a PFSense box. Mm-hmm. And it's not had a single problem. You know, it's worked really, really well. And I, I felt like if that died, I could replace it with another box. So it wasn't a huge deal. Well, it would be very like, inconvenient. But uh, Up until I started getting faster internet, yeah. uh, when I went over 100 megabits for my internet, my PFSense box was a Pentium 3 <laughs> that I had had laying around for years. It's like... A spare machine we accumulated when we had an office mm-hmm. uh, before Scale Engine was called Scale Engine. Back when it was just a consulting company that Stefan and I had, we just collected all these old machines that people wanted to give away or right. whatever. They're done with and them or whatever. We had a rack full of random test hardware for playing with stuff on. And, you know, it, yeah. Nowadays it's like, ah, I don't want anything that's not 64 bit. Just get rid of it. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, power consumption was a problem with the older machines. That's definitely something to watch out for. Um, if you're paying for power because, you know, if you're buying the server to go in a data center or something, if you're paying per amp, you might actually be better off with something newer in the long run. Like over the course of a year, the more power it uses might have paid for the difference between buying this used server and buying a newer one. <laughs> it's a good topic. And I'd actually like yeah. to hear more about the audience experience maybe in the subreddit. Yeah. Uh, I, I I definitely get sucked into looking at you know, on eBay and it's like oh I can get that server for that cheap and mm-hmm. uh, I remember uh, specifically I bought this uh, Avocent KVM uh, for IP KVM for controlling servers yep. that don't have IP mice yeah. in my old hardware. They're doesn't. super expensive new. eBay is a great when, place. When I looked at buying this exact one, the yeah. two user sixteen computer one, yeah. back in two thousand eight when we built the servers that I needed to manage, yeah. It was $16,000. Yeah, Avocent is super expensive. Yep. Yeah. I, I paid $230 on eBay. I know, it. right? You just can't pass that up. Ago. The cables new are still $100 a piece, but I got a bulk set. When you just you have to watch and then pick them off as when they come up cheap. And it still works fine? Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, people have a problem with it resetting under heavy load and stuff, but <laughs> I'm not using it that much. Don't expose it to the internet and it acts a lot better. Yeah. Most of the problems it has is brute force attacks against it, screw it up. Yeah. So keep it behind a VPN and it generally works pretty good. Okay, that's cool. Um, all right, uh, so Jeremy wrote in a super, 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 super long one. So maybe we'll parse it together. We'll kind of, I, I know what he's getting at, so we're fine, but I just, I'll go through parts of it here. Uh, he says, yeah. uh, he says, I thought it'd be interesting to discuss methods for backing up a NAS unit. As more tech snappers turn towards running free NAS on existing or custom-built systems or buy units like the free NAS mini or maybe even a true NAS box, it's going to create a backup issue for those devices. Let's examine a common situation. A free NAS mini is purchased with four drives. The unit is set up with RAID Z2 to protect against some hard drive failures. The configuration also includes keeping multiple copies of files. So great, we're totally protected, right? No. 
Missing yeah. one important piece of backup is the unit itself. What happens if there's fire, theft, earthquake? You know, something really bad happens. Yes, so ZFS and RAID are not a substitute for backups. Right. You still need backups. And I think that's kind of his core point. He's like, so what do we do? How do we back up all this stuff? He says, it seems the yeah. best solution is to set up maybe another identical two FreeNAS mini-type units and mirror all the data between the two. I realize, though, the second unit would have to be located at another location, and it's not going to be necessarily possible for all setups or mini-home or small business users. It seems to me, if a user or a company can't afford two units, then using a light-duty unit with extended three or NTFS to store the main files that, and have it backed up to a ZFS machine might be more ideal. This way, in case extended three or NTFS files get corrupted, you have the snapshots being taken by the ZFS system to roll back. Uh, he says, uh, in addition yeah. to this idea is the dreaded online storage backup. So performing the data dump to some service it solves many problems. Uh, but now you turn your data over to an external source. Could be risky. Plus, slow well, upload speeds are bad. Uh, yeah, the slow up speed, slow upload speed is the basically the thing that prevents you from necessarily having uh, the second free NAS somewhere else and syncing across it uh, or whatever. Uh, for online backup, if you use something like Tarsnap, it's encrypted before it leaves, and you can you don't ever have to worry about the service. Uh, leaking your data somehow, mm-hmm. uh, and so that makes a big difference. And they do; uh, they have a deduplication system where you're only uploading the difference in blocks. Uh, so it's uh, very good about not wasting any upload bandwidth. The thing you can do if you're doing the remote replication thing, if you know you and your friend both have a free NAS and you purposely buy it twice as big as you each want, and then back each other's stuff up. Wait, before you go off Tarsnap, real quick, and ask a Tarsnap question. Sure. Uh, does he offer like a way to send a drive to start. So if your upload speed is super, no. okay, okay, uh, not yet. Okay, that uh, would be really cool. Yeah, that would be. Uh, but he doesn't have a fast internet connection at his house. Right. To do well, and then he's got to be able to receive these drives and then upload the yeah. data himself. So as Amazon them. has a service, but then it wouldn't be encrypted first. Well, that's yeah, just it. How do you do that. their encryption if you're? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. Uh, so specifically for that point, if you're backing up with a friend or something, to do the initial backup. Uh, you could be like, well, bring the drive over the your free NAS over to my house, and we'll sync the two yeah. of them. <clears throat> and you know, and then we'll only send the differences back and forth. There's that uh, crash plan, which you can pay for, mm-hmm. and it has an online component. Or you can, I think, there's crash plan free, and it lets you just back up between two locations, right? Or uh, BitTorrent sync, or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you know, if you're both, if they're both free NASs, you can use the ZFS replication feature. Yeah. Uh, the nice thing with that is you can do it to specific data sets. You can decide these these sets of directories should be backed up. And these ones don't matter. So, right, the videos you download off the internet or whatever, you don't you don't need to back up your copies of TechSnap. You can download them again. Right. You do want to back up the videos you took of your little baby or whatever. Totally. Yep. Uh, and so uh, that is probably a good point. Maybe right there is just mm-hmm. the way you divvy up your data. You back up some of it. That's another way. Yeah. You, you have to back up everything. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, about I uh, mentioned uh, external hard drives. Yeah. Uh, yes, that works. Um, you know, ZFS replication can do diffs that way. So if you just have a set of drives, like yeah. uh, if you do them, so you have a rotating set. So if you have like three drives, you back up this one this week and send it away, and then you get the one that's the oldest and bring it back and and then do it. And so that there's always two of the drives mm. away and, yeah. and the one that you're working on local. Yep. Um, and you can do just incrementals with that, so it doesn't take a very long time. Actually, um, PCBSD is coming up with a feature for that where you can keep your home directory on uh, USB sticks encrypted and it gets decrypted when you log in mm. and so that you can move your home directory around with you because uh, Chris wanted this for his house where he's got you know his home directory yeah. shared between like three or four computers yeah, it's but, also, the butt. 
he has a lot of kids and only so many computers, and this would let each of them have their own set of stuff, no matter well, which. They could sit at any computer, and it would. And you know, work. I've uh, with USB three thumb drives, I've run like the entire OS off the thumb drive, and it, it's plenty fast. I've done that, although I burned out four USB yeah. sticks with that. Yeah, though. yeah, I did too. They're, I, I not, not four, but I burned out a USB stick as well. Yeah, they're the USB three sticks. While they're big, they don't have very much write endurance. Is that what sometimes. it is? I think so. Yeah. It seems uh, like what it or works. they're just not meant to run twenty four seven. Probably both. Yeah, uh, <laughs> one and the same, really. Uh, yeah, I, 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 two of them won't even do anything now. One of them says it's read only. You can read the data off of it, but you cannot write to it. Like <laughs> you, you pl- plug it into Windows to 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 try it. I tried like the one I wanted to like reformat it and try to fill it and make sure it would work or whatever. Uh, and uh, tried to repartition it, and yeah. Windows is like, sorry, that drives read only. Oh boy. Although yeah. it's nice that it did that rather than just going until it failed. It's like you can still get your files back. You just can't write any more files to this. <laughs> I got it was actually kind of like a graceful failure. The one thing uh, – here, I just grabbed this. Uh, I, I have this uh, – I think I've talked to you about it before, but I don't think I've ever talked about it on the TechSnap show. No? Uh, I have this uh, this Zalman drive, you know? Uh, oh, is that that one that can have ISOs on it and yeah. you can boot it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I saw that somebody at BSD can had that and it was it's it was awesome because we were I was trying to do the FreeBSD install on a laptop that uh, had a buggy BIOS that wouldn't boot off GPT. Yeah. And I was trying to solve the problem. Yeah. And I borrowed that off of them to boot yeah. off of a bunch of times. So it, what's neat is uh, it, it's so it's a it's I have it's a two and a half inch enclosure. So I it's USB three and and I have an SSD drive in there and you can you can lock it in there. I don't have it locked in so I can swap the drive out. Uh, and it's essentially really the magic is just this top part. And on here they have a LCD screen and a side joggle, uh, toggle thing. It's just t- yep. toggles up or down. And you use that to toggle between the different ISO images on yeah, the drive. Yeah, the ISO images. Yeah. It's, it's and when you click down, yeah. tool. when you click down, it emulates a USB CD-ROM of that ISO image. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you still get access to the rest of the storage on here. So you can actually, you can, uh, you can emulate a live ISO and then write persistently to the SSD, which is really cool. Yeah, so you, uh, especially with um, PCBSD's life preserver t- utility, mm-hmm. you could boot the PCBSD ISO off of it to get into yeah. it and then restore the data from that external drive. Yeah. Yeah, it could be a complete, like, uh, bare metal bootstrap uh, recovery solution. Um, the only downside, it's probably not, no problem for you, uh, is that uh, NTFS. You can do uh, FAT32. You can do FAT32, but then like certain ISO... Your DVD ISOs will be yeah. too big and won't fit. Yeah, exactly. Does it do XFAT? <laughs> well, you could put the drive in anything you want, but then the CD-ROM emulation right. doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. I guess there... I, I have read there's a way to flash the uh, emulation software to do uh, extended 3, but... So, you know, that's the downside is you got to have NTFS. So I don't that actually... I don't use it as much, but it's so handy to install from. And it's great for like... Partition it. Would it get confused with partition it so you could have some NTFS for your images and then the rest of You know, of I space? might try that. I, you know what? Why not try that, actually? I think I will. And so, like, right now, I've got, like, just basic ISOs on there I can just plug in and I just choose from yeah. them and it's good for troubleshooting. It's very useful, though. Mm-hmm. All right. Our last email, last question comes in from Mike. Uh, he says, I've been a fan from way back since before last even had seasons. So he's been watching since before TechSnap was a uh, twinkle in our eye. I am, an, I, I'm a, I am in IT and I'm a geek and I work from home. So my core network has to work. I'm in the process of standing up a Zen server cluster with FreeNAS as the shared storage because, hey, who doesn't need a virtual server cluster? I chose Zen server because it delivers more uh, more for free than ESXi and I need to be able to run some Windows VMs. Which, uh, 
while I had me eyeing a PF Sense box as a candidate for virtualization, my current physical PF Sense box has three NICs, though, of course, the WAN, the LAN, and like an optional work network interface that has access to my site-to-site VPN. I'm pretty sure I can make this work, but as a sanity check, how bad of an idea is it to virtualize a PF Sense box? I'm thinking I could use VLANs on my main switch to make the magic happen. Thanks for any input. Keep up the good work. Alan, we get a lot of variations of this questions. Yep. This one's like with VLANs on the managed switch, too, which is an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Uh, so the new PF Sense 2.2 that just came out has uh, even better support for Zen. Uh, and it works. It's a supported uh, setup. Um, and, you know, technically best practices say you kind of want it separated. Uh, basically, you have kind of weird networking if your internet connection has to go into the virtualizer, into the host, or into the guest that PF sends, do the stuff, and then come back out, and then go into your other VMs and so on. But, um, you know, it doesn't quite give you that that same delineation, but uh, in general, it should be fine, yeah. Uh, hell, my PFSense box, when, before I started doing TechSnap and needed the performance mm-hmm. and so on, at one point was actually a VM running on the free version of VMware server on a Windows file server. So before I, I was using BSD as much, I had a, a Windows file server that was like my media center, and that's why it was Windows, uh, and it had you know, a bunch of drives full of all my media, and then a VMware install on that where I then ran PFSense. And the second network card that had the internet connection was a pass through into the PSN's box where we do the internet and then pass, and then the other one was bridged back to uh, the LAN interface. And so all my internet was actually going through a Windows box that was running PSN's in a VM. So it does, it definitely works. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it seems to be something a lot of people in the TechSnap audience are experimenting with. Yeah. Well, it, you know, uh, if you only can afford so much hardware, it makes sense to, uh, Put as much as you can in the virtualization. Yeah, and, and it's nice to, Just be able to don't put the free NAS in the virtualization, please. Uh, and yeah, the PFSense is fine to virtualize. Yeah, and uh, I've I even considered doing it, and it, it makes a lot of sense. You invest a lot of money in a rig, you got some NICs. Give it well, a shot. In, in particular, uh, the PFSense you want it to be low power, so running it yeah. as an extra process on an existing machine saves a lot of power versus having a dedicated box where it's going to use like no CPU twenty four seven. Yeah, it's just going to be running and wasting power. Okay, if you've got a question for us, go over to Jupiter Broadcasting, click the contact link, choose TechSnap from that dropdown, or you can email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Or I really like it when you do the subreddit because we're a little better about catching those because we kind of visit that multiple times a, a week, techsnap.reddit.com. It's also a good spot to get answers from our super smart community who's a lot of times building and working with a lot of this really cool stuff and have some great experiences and often will offer advice. They don't have to, but a lot of them will jump in that subreddit from time to time and help people out. Uh, and with our feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still kind of want to go over them, give you some links to follow up on your own. And some of these links came from that subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Now, this first one, I'm just going to play a, a quick clip. It is a uh, 10-minute, about 9-minute, 16-second Vice documentary about a pretty fascinating Bitcoin mining operation in China. I'm going to play just a moment for you so those of you on the visual feed can uh, see what it looks like. You'll hear some talking, uh, and uh, what you will definitely recognize if you've ever worked in a data center is that very familiar data center fan noise. Uh, Take a look at this massive, massive Bitcoin mining operation. 
racks and racks, wires all over the floor. So this is this here is the general manager. He makes sure that everything stays safe. All the staff have food, and power. Power is one of their biggest issues, obviously. Yeah, look at that! Just there's just a channel full of Ethernet. power cables running. Power, Ethernet, whatever it is. Yeah, might be power. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, here's the, here's the rigs. They have six sites total, which is nuts, right? Uh, and they're doing their best to expand up to uh, uh, even more sites. And they have people that live in this mining operation 24/7. They have rooms there they stay in. Uh, and they're just going as fast as they can to get it. And it's just a really interesting look at this thing. I mean, they just got some. They just got some warehouse room, and uh, they just ended up like setting up racks yeah. in there. And it, it reminds me of uh, this data center we used to all in the industry make fun of because it was like tower PCs on bread racks in a room. That was their yeah. data center, and, and uh, the problem they had was uh, a little too often. As uh, techs were working on stuff, they'd trip over power cables and knock people's machines offline. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And stuff like that. Yeah, I've, I've had a few stories of those, too. Hey, uh, you caught this interesting BMW one. Uh, we're, mm-hmm. We've talked about uh, the computer systems in cars before. Um, this one, though, it's like, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe they're getting too much, like, smartphones and computers now. Like, updates for my car. Are people going to yeah. do this? So, uh, Is this going to work? BMW released an update for 2.2 million cars uh, that they've sold uh, because an attacker could pretend to be a – or could do a rogue uh, cell phone base station and intercept the traffic going back and forth to the car, which is all unencrypted. Uh, the fix makes it uh, go over HTTPS and be encrypted. Uh, the problem was that the attacker could then uh, make the car do things, including unlock the doors, roll down the windows, etc. So, you know, your car could become haunted. Well, well, and I wonder, easily like... Easily stolen if somebody with a cell phone could uh, well, cause your car to just unlock itself. I shouldn't even say this, but does the name uh, Michael Hastings ring a bell to you at all? Is that... No? Okay. Anyways, uh, it, so it says it appears the vulnerability revolved around a, an insecure transmission of data... Uh, where they enabled uh, HTTPS for future updates. That's so. The problem was that they weren't doing SSL. That was the issue. Yep. That was the problem. Like and you could sniff the traffic. And, that was and really your own commands. That doesn't like. Come on, guys. How are you going to build something into a, something as important as a motor vehicle like that and not think of that? Well, the interesting thing is that's probably what protected them from Heartbleed, <laughs> not using the SSL. <laughs> All right, got me there. Uh, hey, Alan, maybe you can tell so us about. So the question the- is: Now that they're using SSL, have they ena- fixed Heartbleed? I hope devices. so. This might have been you. Uh, this uh, this article over on Motherboard, uh, how a Canadian spy or spies infiltrated the Internet core uh, to watch what we all do online. You know about this? Have you read that? Have you read about The Internet this? doesn't have a single core. There's a core according to the Motherboard. I don't know what they mean by that. I guess they would probably yeah. mean like maybe an ISP or something. Uh, they say there's 200 locations around the world. Spies from Canada's cyber intelligence agency have been monitoring huge volumes of global. Inter- so maybe they have like special, like important ISPs. They have. I'm guessing more like internet exchanges. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, here we go. Those are access to the backbone is achieved through a program called Eon Blue. According to the documents disclosed by Edward Snowden and published by Der Spiegel last month, the program is designed to track down threats, discover unknown threats, and provide defense at core at the core of the internet. That's what it says in the thing. Yeah, I don't know if they're like a monitor port on the, on the switches that run the backbones, but I don't know how they can just deal with that much traffic. Maybe they're using the same system the NSA does, where they buffer it and then they just parse through it and then dump it. Yeah, but like if you're if you connected to 
Like, yeah, it's a lot the, of data. The, the switches at the core of like the Toronto Internet Exchange, I think, are ten or forty gig ports, and so there's lots of traffic going back and forth. But no one monitor port could read it all. No, I know. And, and I, the each port costs a lot of money. Somebody had to pay for that. In the case of the NSA, they actually split it off at the at the fiber level. Ah, that could help. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, all right, so this next one, I don't know what to make of this. I'd like to hear your take on it. Mozilla is going to enforce signing for Firefox extensions pretty soon. Yeah, uh, so uh, really Chrome know. already does this. Basically, yeah. if you want a Chrome extension, you have to get it from the Chrome but store. But doesn't that mean that somebody has to approve every extension? Doesn't Yes. Uh, so to get for Chrome, Chrome says you're gonna, you have to go through the Google ecosystem. Firefox doesn't want to do that and force people to only get extensions from the Mozilla stores okay. so that people can still do like custom uh, internal okay. extensions and so on. Good. But it, they're going uh, in Firefox 39, they're going to start warning people against unsigned uh, extensions. And then if you want to put your extension in the Microsoft or the Mozilla um, catalog, or if you just want people to be able to install it, you send it to them. They'll uh, verify, go through the code of it and make sure it's not doing anything uh, bad or doing anything it doesn't say that it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they will sign it and send it back to you so that you can host it yourself still. Sounds pretty practical. So uh, much better solution than Google's, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think so too. And good because... Or much more like open solution. Much more much more Mozilla of an approach, yeah. really. Uh, <laughs> I heard this story. Uh, TurboTax has suspended state e-filing, citing a big spike in fraud. Yeah, so well, TurboTax was asked by the governments of like eight states to stop uh, allowing people to do file their taxes online because they've got... Uh, a lot of fake uh, tax returns, apparently. Oh, boy. Uh, and then Krebs has pictures there. Apparently, um, somebody's selling access to uh, something that they managed to get from somewhere. Uh, it's not clear what's exactly going on yet, but uh, problems with tax season, it seems. Hmm. Yeah, they say they did an audit and uh, no indications of a breach at Intuit. Yeah. But, uh, uh, now, it could just be that people use weak passwords or something, but it definitely seems like something fishy is going on. Uh, and I love the fake logo somebody made up there. <laughs> TurboTax, do your taxes before, before someone, someone else, else does. Oh, <laughs> uh, couldn't be the tax season without a cyber uh, problem, no. Uh, well, it's, that's fairly new for tax season. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. This is the new, this is the new tax. This is going to be the new thing every tax season. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so Trend Micro or Trend Labs over at trendmicro.com uh, is asking is anonymous attacking internet is is the anonymous attacking internet exposed gas pump monitoring system in the US what the hell does that headline even mean is the anonymous internet exposed gas pump monitoring system in the you're reading words that aren't there what is the is anonymous attacking oh anonymous oh the group anonymous yes got it okay i was thinking like anonymous uh, uh, well, gas machines like what? the word the and a bunch yeah, of yeah anyway well, I'm a spaz, uh, I we guess. talked about the gas pump monitoring systems uh, being vulnerable the other day yeah yeah uh well uh now they found one where uh the name of the system has been renamed to like we are legion or whatever uh Great. anonymous's tagline is and so yeah. they're like you know it's like yes Gas pumps are vulnerable. We've known this. Yeah. Of course, some kid went in there and renamed one of them. And, you know, people should fix their gas pumps and your gas monitoring systems. I, uh, I just, <laughs> I love the idea that, uh, uh, I love the idea that, that I, I, I totally butchered that so badly that I thought it was like gas pumps, anonymous gas pumps are attacking people. I'm like, what the hell? That's hilarious. Uh, okay. And we got one more here from, uh, Krebs, uh, Fishers pounds on the Anthem breach we talked about last week. Yes. Uh, so the healthcare provider, uh, insurance provider getting hacked. And yeah. so people are getting uh, phone, like uh, cold phone calls, 
uh, emails, everything. They're basically everybody's out there. All the bad guys are out there trying to trick you into giving them uh, the information. So it's like, oh, you know, give us your personal information, and we'll tell you if you're one of the accounts that was hacked. It's like, well, you are now. <laughs> Uh, but also they're doing it over the phone and such uh, mm, mm. rather than just email phishing. They're doing phone phishing and so on too. And this is that concept we've talked about before of trend jacking, you know, jumping on whatever the hot news is in order yep. to fool people. Yeah. What's really funny is Kreb posted this article with this one example of an attack, right? You're showing it right now yeah. where it's this example email that was sent out. Mm-hmm. And somebody sent it to Anthem and so Anthem actually set up a phone line where they're saying, you know, we haven't contacted anybody yet. If you're getting contacted, it's fake which is really going to cause confusion when they actually have to go out and contact people. <laughs> but uh, Krebs later got a follow-up and found out that that phishing email that was sent that's very, very well done was actually by one of those companies that um, sends them out and if you click the link, you get educated on not doing the phishing. Oh. It's actually, uh, I forget the name of it. It's at the bottom of the article. Right, yes. We've talked about it, them before too. Yeah. Um, um, Andy Krebs is like, full disclosure, they actually pay to advertise on my blog. <laughs> Huh. But uh, they uh, so it was actually one that was sent out some uh, to no no before does that sound right no yeah. before yeah no before no before um, so a com- the company paid no before to send uh, phishing stamps to all of its users and if any of the users click through then they got educated and you know they get marked and be like oh well this person obviously fell for phishing we need to teach them not to do that so that our computers aren't at risk yeah uh, well it seems that somebody didn't fall for it but saw it and forwarded. It did the right thing, which is forward the, the spoof email to the real company so that they can uh, make sure their customers know not to follow for the fake, right? Like if you get one from PayPal, you send it to spoof at paypal.com and, and they uh, deal with it, uh, right? They try to get the fake site taken down and yep, so on. Yep. Uh, well, he did that for Anthem and it turns out and eventually got back to, it's like, oh yeah, that was actually one that we engineered to teach people not to fall for them. And this guy uh, it was treated well. it like it was a real one yeah. and, and did the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and kind of on the same line, part two to this mm-hmm. story, uh, looks like we might have some deets on when the breach may have started. Yes. Uh, in doing some digging, it looks like uh, Anthem may have actually been breached since April of 2014, uh, meaning it went on for a lot longer than they thought. Ho, 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 boy. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's... And they uh, have some... Uh, some indication that it belongs to one of these Chinese APT groups and everybody's throwing around names like Deep Panda. Yeah, I see that. Deep Panda. <laughs> Gosh, jeez. Uh, but they have this uh, graphic here where they're showing they're apparently breaking into uh, Mongolian government things and universities and so on. Hmm. April. Wow. That's a year, Alan. That's quite that's, interesting. That's quite nuts. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now, I, I just I had to shake my head on this one because this could actually impact our audience. This, this next story, mm-hmm. it's only a bug. They're going to work on it. But Samsung smart TVs are inserting unwanted ads into your own streaming content. So if you like watching something off of Plex, the mm-hmm. Samsung TV is inserting a silent 30-second Pepsi commercial. Silent? For, yeah, because it's a bug. It's not supposed to be happening, so like, it's not all set up. But uh, so, like, you go start. You go to start something off your local network. You don't, you don't even have to have TV service, and it first plays an ad from the TV. How egregious is that? Now that now the smart TVs are coming with built-in ads. So Samsung is working to uh, push out a patch to fix this, but they don't even have the patch written yet. And then they got to get people to update. So that's a that's a big. Uh, problem well that's that's one way to get people to update yeah no kidding it's like put in a uh like a 
what do you call it, a failsafe into the TV. If you haven't patched in six months, we're going to start annoying you with ads so that you'll patch to remove the ads. Right. Now, here's a little walkaround. Uh, if, and this might disable other stuff, so you have to keep this in mind. But if you go into your uh, settings and you do not agree to the Yahoo privacy notice, then this stuff gets turned off because this is part of the Yahoo platform. It, yeah, it's using the Yahoo ad platform. So mm-hmm. if you opt out of it, then uh, it will disable all the ads. Yeah, but it might turn off some other features too. Yep. Uh, so that's that's a temporary. It's interesting workout. that Samsung has uh, got a revenue model that involves uh, making money off showing you ads. And by interesting, you mean horrible. Yeah, I do not want my TV playing ads for me. I don't care if the, what I'm watching has ads in it. That's that's their choice. But my TV, like off my local media, that's one of the reasons well, I watch. In particular, uh, if people are using it to watch TechSnap, yeah. You know, we don't want them to think that, that we're getting paid for that ad because right. we're very much not. Well, and then, yeah, would the Jupiter Broadcasting audience think that we took a Pepsi sponsorship? Like, I wouldn't want them thinking that. And so I just don't, I don't like it at all. Yeah. Uh, and it, it kind of demonstrates. But it's hilarious that it's broken, but you don't get the audio for the ad. So it's just a, yeah. a yeah. weird thing happening when you're trying to watch TV. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've got a TV that has the Yahoo apps on there. Uh, my parents have a smart TV, and it has some advantages. Like yeah. you can just plug a USB stick in the side yep. and play stuff off of it, and uh, it has Ethernet, and it can just find stuff on Samba shares. Yep. yep. Uh, but at the same time, my setup here is a 40-inch LCD monitor that doesn't have any features know, at right? all. That's nice. It just has. Yeah. It doesn't actually. It's so old. It doesn't even have an HDMI feed. It has DVI. <laughs> so it just has a DVI connection. Uh, I have a. An HDMI to DVI cable. So the DVI end goes in the TV and the HDMI end goes in the NUC. Perfect. And the NUC does all the work. I, uh, so the, the TV that we have that has the uh, Yahoo apps on it, get this. And, and this is a Vizio TV. And if anybody in the TechSnap audience can help me with this, I would really appreciate it. So I just want to say to the smart apps thing, one thing I do like about the, the smart TVs is when you get it home and you put it up on the wall or whatever, like it just does stuff. Like I don't even have TV service and I can still watch Netflix and Plex. And, yep. Anyway, so that's nice. But... It uses Wi-Fi to connect to the studio network. And from what we can tell, and I've, I've gone through all of the setting screens, and maybe I missed it, but from what we can tell by looking at Wi-Fi analyzers, it would appear that the Vizio television has a Wi-Fi – it is transmitting a Wi-Fi base station access point on a 2.4 gigahertz spectrum on like channel 6 or something. Uh, and it's adding to the massive Wi-Fi noise on Channel 6 that we already have in this area. It's, it's just, it's just dist- like 2.4 gigahertz is destroyed here. Like yep. even, even, even using like mice and stuff like that are on 2.4 doesn't work very well. It's, it's really – yeah, it's really bad here. Uh, and so the fact that the TV is doing it, A, I don't know if people can join that. And B, I don't want any Wi-Fi transmissions. So I don't know how to turn it off. I don't know why it's yeah, on. Yeah, uh, the Samsung my parents bought the Wi-Fi was a module that you had to buy separately, and the store threw it in as part of the sale or whatever. But it's actually not hooked up. Mm, we, nice. we don't have the Wi-Fi hooked yeah. up because yeah. uh, they didn't have Wi-Fi at their house. Actually, I wonder uh, if- because because of the drop ceiling and I could run cables everywhere. They have Ethernet in every room, and they yeah. they've never actually used Wi-Fi. I might, I might, if I plugged in the Ethernet, it might turn off the Wi-Fi. But yeah, I don't know. It's a tough call because. Uh, uh, I wanted to. I want to keep the Ethernet for other things, so we'll see. But if anybody yeah, out actually, the audience knows, um, I'd love to have it. In, in the room here, where I'm in the, my computer room upstairs, I only have two Ethernet drops. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, I have my computer, the NUC, and the laptop, 
and I actually really would like my computer to have dual Ethernet going for those lags and so on. So the second port actually comes out of the wall and goes into a, a five-port switch. Nice. And then hook everything up to that. You know what? That's what I should do is I should put a switch out there. Yeah. Because I've only got two Ethernet ports, and I'm going to use the second Ethernet port to send HDMI signal from ah, the yeah. studio out to the TV in the living room so people that are visiting can watch a live program feed of what we're recording in the studio. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so that, and then the second one, you can have the other one actually do like the TV and a Roku yeah. and, yeah. you know, the laptop of the person sitting at the machine or whatever. Right. Uh, a whole bunch of things off. And, you know, a little five or eight port switch, yeah. uh, gigabit ones are super cheap now. And silent. Yep. That's exactly good thinking. Going to do that. Probably just mount it to the back of the TV even. It's got like little mount yep. spots on it. All right. Well, that's that, I love about the knuck, the little. Yeah. Out. You could just put a knuck back there. Huh. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> like it comes with the bracket already. Yeah, it like does. You didn't even have to buy it. Yeah, it does. I was thinking the first I'll, the first machine I'll, computer I'll probably put out there, but probably a Steam machine, but I'm not sure. Right. Uh, okay. My, uh, the problem with mine, my Nook has the VESA mount, but my TV is so big, it's got the bigger VESA mount. Oh. So oh, bummer. Right, because well. my TV is like a commercial one designed for like the display at an airport with the flight lists on it. Mm-hmm. And so it's got like the, like the BNC twist lock connectors and... It's got a complete set of slave outputs where you put a second TV back-to-back with it, so you mm. only have to run one set of signal to it. That's nice. It has no built-in speakers. Right. And so on. Probably uh, exactly so, what I wanted. I really didn't want a TV that was smart. I just wanted a display. Yeah. But the smart TV is great, especially with, you know, wife or kids or whatever. You yep. just hear movies on a USB stick, yep. play. Well, especially away. since we don't have uh, TV service. So. Yep. Exactly. Uh, okay, I want feedback. So everybody go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Click that. Go to the TechSnap thing. Fill in your stuff and send it in. Get, our, get your questions in here. Uh, let's start getting more questions in the TechSnap show. I got a couple more emails I didn't get to this week. I'm going to double-check those, and we might include those in next week's show. So if yours didn't get answered this week, I apologize, but we should be on it next week. Also, the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Great place for questions or content for the show. And last but not least, wouldn't it be cool if you could join us live? First of all, it's way more show. Whether we keep going during the segment breaks where we stop and play the crazy music, well, the show goes on during those times, sometimes for like 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you could join us live and chat. And that today, it was like an impromptu AMA for Alan in the chat room. <laughs> yeah. Chris, Chris went to get a drink. So. Yeah. I went to go get a Diet Pepsi and I come back and it's an AMA. And that went on for a little while. And this is kind of fun because you also get to help us title uh, the show and then vote on that and uh, give us feedback as we're doing it. So that's at jblive.tv. And we do this show 1 p.m. Pacific on Thursdays, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom, boom, boom. Also check out jblive.info for the audio version if you're on the go or sitting at your desk and don't have access to video. Uh, and uh, that'll pretty much wrap it up right there. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. Bye.